2: They can just, you know, make an exception and they've chosen not to for years. And we're talking about children who were born in Australia and are going through federal court processes to determine whether we owe them protection or not because the government keeps fighting them on every single appeal and every single win. So this is a conscious choice.
3: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Catherine Murphy,
2: Amy Remakers, S- Sarah Martin.
3: Daniel Hurst and Paul Carp, also known as the Dream Team. And thank you very much for joining us. But before we roll into today's episode, I just want to let you know that we, being the Guardian, are running a survey to find out what you think of our Guardian podcasts and what new podcasts you would like us to make. So if you've got thoughts on this question, head along to theguardian.com forward slash pod If you have a few minutes to help us out, we'd be really grateful. Now, with the public service announcement under our belts, let's crack on with today's episode. Now, I have the Dream Team with me and regular listeners will know that periodically we do these Ask Us Anything episodes. So today is another one of those. And I really want to commend people for the questions. Every time we've done one of these episodes, the questions have just gotten better, and we appreciate it, and it's fun for us to to turn our minds to all sorts of thorny questions. So we're going to start with Sarah and questions, oh my God, of course, I haven't brought in my list of everybody's names, apologies. We got you all on Twitter. If, I, I might be able to uh, rustle it up by the end. It's all right. It's all right. Sarah, let's crack on. So, the, our first question uh, from someone on Twitter, who Catherine's going to find while you answer the question, asks Why hasn't electoral support for the government collapsed given their demonstrable incompetence managing issues involving Brittany Higgins, aged care, vaccines, quarantines, cli- climate crisis, etc.?
1: The list goes on. The list goes um on. well, look, I think we've talked about this previously, but I think probably the number one reason is the benefit that incumbents have in the middle of a pandemic, which we have talked about in terms of state governments. We have seen some of the gloss come off. Scott Morrison's approval ratings have suffered a bit of a hit. And particularly in the latest essential poll, we saw that that was the case also for the um, Andrews government, even though we know that Daniel Andrews isn't the, the man in action at the moment. So look, a bit of gloss has come off. The primary vote for the government is sort of holding up at this stage. And I think that's probably a combination of the benefit of incumbency and also the fact that for most people at the moment, they're not really paying that much attention. And of course, with the pandemic, yes, we're seeing a lot of problems with the vaccine rollout. But by and large, other than for our poor friends in Victoria, most people are living their lives somewhat untroubled by the pandemic. So I think that there's perhaps a, you know, at the moment, perhaps there's an element of people giving him the benefit of the doubt, Mm -hmm. or at least the government the benefit of the doubt, even though Morrison's approval ratings are on the downward slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, it just uh, I have found our questioner. This is
3: from mm. Beak, Beak on Twitter. So at Bekaroo81 was our questioner. Mm. Anyway, just for the record, anyone else got thoughts? Come on. <laughs>
2: I think um, I think Sarah is right in what she is saying there about some of the gloss coming off, but also people not paying attention because, I mean, who is thinking about election right now? I mean, everyone's spent the last 18 months just trying to get through the day, let alone thinking about the next time that they're going to have to go to the polls. Like, nobody cares at the moment. The problem for the Morrison government is when people do start caring and whether they start caring about what they've seen over the last year or so, which is also a problem for Labor, because Anthony Albanese is still trying to show who he is to voters. People haven't made up their mind about him as yet. Uh, he's been him and Labour, like most oppositions during the pandemic, have been rather anonymous and haven't been able to get a toehold in the national conversation. So we're going to see all of that ramped up uh, for both sides, which I think is why we're also seeing a lot about security and borders and safety coming out from the coalition, particularly this week. They're seeing that they're they're uh, starting to to drop a little bit, so they want to remind people of their strengths, which is where you're also going to see Labor step up as well, I think.
3: Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you're setting that up in the election context, but Amy has provided a very good segue to our next question from Janine Van Hell, which may or may not be Janine's <laughs> actual name. Miss Van Hell. But uh, Miss Van Hell has asked, why is the ALP unable to take the spotlight away from Scott Morrison. Why is the message that he is not running the country but running his campaign that being Labor's message I presume she means not cutting through? Sarah, you start.
1: Uh, Well, I think the very obvious answer to that is that at the moment they don't want the spotlight on them. They very much want to keep the spotlight on Scott Morrison so people start paying attention to the things that we mentioned in the first part of this discussion. Obviously, the lesson after the last election was that Labor had way too many policies. Everyone was talking about Labor's policies and no one was paying any attention to the government. The conventional wisdom is oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. So they're very much focused on keeping people's attention on the government and its failings. And as we get closer to the election, as Amy said, we're going to see Labor come up with their... You know, their positive policies, they their alternative to the current government. But I think they are very happy to keep the focus on the government at the moment. They don't want people talking about the Labor Party but they will soon.
3: What are the thoughts in the back corner where our gents are uncharacteristically quiet?
0: Yeah, I, I think it was a conscious choice during the pandemic year to be constructive and positive and offer bipartisan support while things were going well. And we've seen uh, state governments where the oppositions have been more combative and uh, refused that. They've sort of collapsed much more. So it was a conscious choice to try and be positive in 2020. They have flipped the switch now but they haven't, they haven't flipped the switch to here's 20 things that Labor would do in government. They've just flipped the switch to highlighting the government's failings on, on vaccines and, and quarantines mm-hmm. and we, we haven't seen what their what their election pitch is, is going to be beyond that
3: daniel and
4: it's still very as much like as we've spoken about before the national cabinet structure is still in place it's definitely fractured but it's still very much a prime ministers and state premiers territory yes. chief ministers show so people in their own states and territories are seeing their own leaders talk about the situation in their region and then we're seeing the prime minister and the government under pressure on certain things but Albanese does get some media coverage, but media coverage is still very much focused on national leader and the state and territory leaders.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd just add one more thing before we move on to the next question, just in terms of the, like, just the the theme of both of these questions is that Morrison's absolutely in the ascendancy and Labor is absolutely on the nose. That is actually not what the opinion polls tell us. It's a sort of interesting phenomenon because we at The Guardian have chosen not to telegraph our two party preferred numbers for a bunch of reasons that regular listeners will be aware of. News poll is still out regularly in the field and, and, and publishing its 2PP number which uh, I think in the latest polls 50-50 again uh, the polls the polls indicate that there is a contest and both sides of politics are acting as if there is one so I think we should presume there is one
2: and I'd just add to that there is such a huge number of people who are undecided about Anthony Albanese yeah, that's, and yeah, very and very important point. and that is you know that's a huge opportunity for labor in terms of how they're seeing it because the meh factor we just don't know him is a lot easier to overcome than we don't like him yes. so there's going it's going to be a really interesting six months, I think, but just keep an eye on the undecideds because they're always the ones who end up deciding these contests. Mm,
3: yeah, yes, exactly, precisely. Um, Sarah, last one for you yep. in terms of taking the lead. Now, do you see any parallels between how the current federal government, i.e. Scott Morrison and friends, deals with issues, political or otherwise, and the manoeuvring of the Howard government in its during its last years in office? Does longevity in government always reflect the inevitability of them ultimately being voted out. Now, the the last clause of that (laughs) <laughs> Question is a bit existential, so we can step off step off that in the first oh, instance. Do I, I we, mean,
1: I think the last clause is sort of interesting, even though that step they're, up there, like there there's sort of a sense of um, you know maybe a, a bit of wishful thinking in that last clause. But you know, I think there are some similarities and there are some differences. I mean, obviously with the Howard government, John Howard, were, you know, he'd been in government for they'd been in government for 11 years under the same leader, and there was a lot of speculation, particularly in his final years, about whether or not there was going to be a hand. Over whether or not he had, you know, done his time, there was all that the, the Costello speculation um, and Howard's obviously a complete um, intransigence to, to leaving the job, and so there was very much a, a massive it's time factor, which we know then led to Kevin 07, et etc. So different in that Scott Morrison isn't seen as someone who's been there for a very long time and is stale, and his time's up. Because even though the government is eight years old, Morrison's, you know, this this is. Really really his second term and he was very late in the last term so it's, he hasn't been around for a long time and he's also not 65 so he doesn't have that sort of that age factor working against him that Howard had you know I think when when Howard announced he was staying after 65 everyone was like oh this is a win for for senior Australians yes, you know there was, sorry, <laughs> there was like yes. very much that, that element to it in terms of the maneuvering and style I think Scott Morrison is quite similar to John Howard in terms of this sort of this pragmatism, which you know, could be seen as sort of like political opportunism at any price, you know, manoeuvre, switch as need be. We've seen Morrison, when he's been under pressure, been quite reactive and, for example, bringing in the army for the bushfires. We've seen similar um, manoeuvrings with in the army for bringing the in the army with, with the vaccine. <laughs> I think in in many ways, like Howard as well was prepared to completely pivot on issues once he sniffed the sniffed the wind. So I think there is some similarities but I think not necessarily the same inevitability as we saw at the end of the Howard Paul, years. Paul's busting to bust
0: in here. See, see I, I think Morrison races back to the centre and recalibrates much sooner. So he pinches policies off the other side when he needs to, like JobKeeper much sooner. The last budget was a big spending budget. Whereas Howard had some big things that he did, claiming he would introduce an emissions trading scheme, trying to reintroduce the no disadvantage test after ripping it out in work choices. So he did have some big ones, but they came very late. They were very reluctant and they weren't really believed when he did them. Whereas Whereas Morrison just raises back as as soon as he sniffs that it's not going well. Mm.
2: I think also one of the, the big differences between what we're seeing now and what we saw in the last real conservative government is the strength of the National Party as well. I mean, John Howard always had a strong deputy and I don't think anyone can say that the Nationals have offered a strong leadership over the last few years. There are still a party who's still trying to find out where exactly they stand in this new world, which is you know, kind of insane when you think about just how long the Nationals' political history is. But because they don't have that backing, the Liberals don't necessarily have that strong backing in the bush, which they've traditionally relied upon to find that centre, I think you find the, the Liberals being a lot more reactionary. As Sarah was saying, and and Paul did like bring it back to the middle because we're upsetting too many people and we can't afford to upset too many people because we only govern with a couple of seats.
3: and the and the critical difference between Morrison and Howard as operators is that you were you were even though Howard was mm. intensely pragmatic as Sarah's painted in her portrait, we literally know the hill that John Howard would die on politically because he died on it. Mm. and his Values, values on certain questions were immovable, which explains Paul's phenomenon of conversions being not that compelling, and he didn't put his back into some of these conversions because he didn't believe in them whereas this Prime, prime minister is much more flexible, shall we say. Now, Daniel, you're going to take the lead on these next couple, so let's rip through these. What are your thoughts on uh, Peter Dutton in the role of defence, uh, especially in relation to the alleged war crimes in Afghanistan? And, oh, my God, it's the lovely sociologist woman's name who I can't pronounce.
4: <laughs> Crom- I, can't, I, I won't Crom- claim to say it correctly, Crom- but Dr Samantha Cromfitts.
3: Cromfitts, new book, yes. Anyway, fire up.
4: OK, well, look dutton 's only been defence Minister for a couple of months. Major defense projects there's been a lot of troubles with those, but they 're really difficult to deal with. They have long time frames in the meantime dutton's been showing himself he 's you know interested in fighting culture war issues he's been taking on so called woke events which is like you know <laughs> so, you know basically just supporting we, colleagues who are yes. you know are gender diverse, gender yeah. diverse events, and, exactly. and so on so they're exactly. already
2: dead to Peter Dutton so ah, I don't even think yeah, we're, we're not woke
3: that's true
4: but yeah, you know he's been very keen on sort of pushing a message of getting defence back to business supporting our troops we've got your backs that sort of message and that sort of it sort of comes back to the issue of how the government's dealing with the fallout from the Brereton Inquiry into war crimes yes. in Afghanistan. And this, the latest flashpoint is this book that Dr Kromfurtz has written. It's due to come out next month. It's contentious because uh, she did a lot of the early interviews with defence personnel mm, that, that led to led the, Brereton, to the Brereton, Brereton Inquiry being triggered. Mm-hmm. And she says... She has said that it's not a tell-all book in any sense. It's a book, it's called Bloodlust, Trust and Blame, and she says it's all based on material that's already in the public domain. She's not spilling the beans on classified information, but nevertheless, it obviously is going to be uncomfortable for some of the defence top brass and also some commentators in terms of how they've interpreted this and characterised what happened in Afghanistan as being in the fog of war. Mm. And Peter Dutton, in one of his regular chats with 2GB, said he sought legal advice on the book he's trying to get more information about what he can do about it but he's made clear that he's told defence his views and that she's unlikely to get any further contracts for it from defence for work to do with cultural change.
3: It's kind of extraordinary anyway just paying due credit this question is from Margaret Innes on Twitter. Boy! <laughs> it's hard I like, to know really where to start with that.
4: And sort of more substantively, this, you know, one of his early decisions was to publicly uh, hang the Chief of Defence out to dry and say, I'm not going to strip meritorious unit citations from about 3,000, I think, Special Forces soldiers who served in Afghanistan. This was something that Angus Campbell had announced when he released the Brereton Report. It's very hard to imagine that the government didn't know that he was going to announce that Mm -hmm. in in terms of the response to the Brereton Report. But very quickly after that, Morrison started crab-walking away from that idea. There was media pressure about, you know, not besmirching or taking away awards or medals from people who have, have have not been proven to have done anything wrong and and so Dutton finalised that process by publicly announcing very early in his tenure that no everyone would get to keep them unless they were subsequently convicted by a court or some other administrative mm. process through defence. So this is what I sort of go back to he's been very strong on messaging about supporting the troops you know not besmirching reputations based on these allegations and also really been a bit of a spear carrier for the Tough on China message.
1: Yeah, well, I Dutton, think, a spear carrier. Uh, I, yes, mean, uh, rules. I know, um, Sergeant I, Dutton. I, I, suppose,
3: I suppose we can summarise this by uh, by suggesting or, or saying in response to Margaret's question that uh, we probably got the most political defence minister that we've seen for some period of time.
4: He's not going to be a quiet. No, defence minister. Uh, and he's not going to leave it to the, the PM to take the lead on defence yeah. things.
3: Yeah, yeah. Anyway, very interesting. So rolling on now to uh, the other mild, well, not mild, massive horror show of the week. Um, Daniel, easy question. Why is the family on Christmas Island not able to return to Biller Wheeler?
4: Well, it's, it's a political decision of the government that their, you know, tough, quote unquote, on borders policy doesn't have any exceptions. Yeah. That's, that's the political calculation well, it's, the it's, government's it's, made and even in this case where they this family has extremely strong support from the local community in the Queensland town of Billawela regular appeals and public support for them to be to go back home uh, to Billawela the government's given no sign of shifting all that they've been prepared to say this week is that they might be able to find a resettlement option in New Zealand or the US
3: Yeah I'll give the quick version again it's performative cruelty Okay And uh, the third question that Daniel's going to take the lead on, do you think that Scott Morrison has any genuine human empathy or sadness for the Bilo kids and their plight, or would his own political drive, philosophy, agenda not allow any of those feelings to penetrate?
4: Well, it's hard to know what's inside his mind, (laughs) Uh, but he's previously talked about being the father of daughters, and one would hope this would be a very clear case of where he should reflect on that.
2: Hmm. Because let's remember they can just... You know, make an exception and they've chosen not to for years. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about children who were born in Australia and are going through federal court processes to determine whether we owe them protection or not because the government keeps fighting them on every single appeal and every single win. So this is a conscious choice. And the new Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews recently said oh you know she's a compassionate person but compassion comes in many forms. Mm. Well not in my experience. You either show compassion or you don't. And we are not showing compassion here. And that has been what has been wrong with our policy from the day Labor introduced it and then it was extended under the coalition. We make it very black and white. We have arbitrary rules that we set. And then we decide that we can't do anything about it for political reasons when people are actually suffering. And, and that's what it comes down to. People are suffering because we made an arbitrary decision about when you got here and how you got here.
3: Any of us going to stand up for performative cruelty or should we just move on? No, that's a fat no from us for standing up for performative cruelty. Amy, you are taking the lead on the next few questions.
2: Sorry, I get very upset about it. Well,
3: we're, we're all pretty upset. We're all uh, – and uh, and I know a lot of readers are upset Uh it's yeah, we we
2: have no words. Amy, how do we fix question time? <laughs> cancel it? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Without cancel culture. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's it. Boom. The <laughs> one thing cancel culture can actually cancel question time. Okay. Well, that well, that's a quick answer. Uh, our questioner
3: wanted to know. Well, you've sort of answered the latter question. We had a, we had a couple of questions come in on question time for this for this pod. The first one was how do we fix it and do the recommendations of the recent parliamentary committee go far enough? There was another question which was basically in the tone of why even bother because it's just so short, why even bother, right? So what do you think in response to both of those?
2: Well, I think in the last couple of uh, sittings we've definitely seen Tony Smith try the speaker, try and pull question time back into something that it's supposed to be, which is questions and answers. And just sitting there hearing a question that doesn't have a huge political bent and getting an answer that can actually help people. I think that's what he's been trying to do. Mm. And you've written Murph on this extensively about how he actually, you know, he's he's rebuked the Prime Minister as part of this campaign. And you've seen at work, the Labour backbenchers are mostly settling down and the heckles have stopped. And we're also seeing him really address, uh, you know, just the whack-a-mole alternative approaches question that the government put forward to their own ministers, which is, you know, has been identified as everybody who's ever seen Question Time. is just a chance just to, you know, basically just shit all over the opposition. Mm. And we've seen Peter Dutton really struggle. Sergeant with, Dutton. with Sergeant Dutton, sorry, yes. We've seen Sergeant Dutton really struggle with trying to adapt to Tony Smith's new approach because he's not allowed to just stand up there anymore and just say, Labor did this and Labor did that and all isn't this terrible, they're soft on borders. But... I think the real issue with Australian question time remains, and that is the Dixes. so the questions that government backbenchers ask their own ministers, don't actually do anything that help constituents, and they're just basically government press releases. And everyone, including the opposition, is basically just after that 6pm news grab. Mm. That's all they want. We sit through an hour and 15 minutes on average, just for somebody to get one line onto a news grab. And that's the issue. When you compare it to something like... Prime Minister's questions in the UK, you actually see like a proper question time because you see ministers having to answer questions that have been put to them on behalf of constituents. So it's actual issues. So it's about visa problems. It's about problems accessing services. It's about problems that have been happening in hospital fundings and things like that. And you see the government, who hasn't necessarily prepared or written answer, Josh Frydenberg looking at you, like have to actually stand up and go, Oh dear, we're going to have to look into this. And then you see stories come from that because you're hearing directly from the communities. Ours is just a PR exercise.
1: I think it's always really interesting that often the best questions actually come from the independent Mm. MPs who are asking questions on behalf of constituents who've had issues. And it's always always this sort of, you know, it's quite a novel moment when one of the independents gets a good question up because... it 's also surprising that often the Minister will genuinely try to answer it, so I find like that dynamic fantastic, and it would be great if both if sides there was more of it, yeah, absolutely,
3: yeah. and just to explain we 're sharing mics today, folks, so if the sound sounds occasionally awkward, i mean the, our beautiful e p and uh, and folks in Sydney will cut us up and clean us up a bit, but if you occasionally hear a microphone.
1: It's <laughs> nothing to do with the fact that I'm a foot shorter than Amy. <laughs> we, we, to, we would love to
3: give you some visuals on this, honestly. Anyway, we, we're doing well. Now, I think, Amy, will. can you also take the lead on a question from a listener? I'm hoping you could delve into the Victorian opposition's interesting strategy of fanning the Daniel Andrews conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. We're all going to want to go at this. Uh, I think. Yeah, Dan Anon. Um, uh, Dan Anon. Um, have we seen similar strategies in Australia before and could conspiracy politics work here as it does in the US?
2: Conspiracy politics can work everywhere. I mean, it's one of the greatest threats to democracy because it's so easy for a conspiracy to take hold and spread on in like wildfire. And before you know it, uh, mainstream news is doing articles on it, just, you know, debunking it or basically going, are there questions to ask? here, and then we just go around in this nine Dante circle of absolute hell of before you actually get to, there was nothing in this in the first place. So yes, conspiracies can take hold in Australia. Have we seen an example of this before? Uh, Probably the most recent one was the death tax during the election. There was no death tax put forward by any political party, and yet, no matter how many different Labor people you spoke to across the country, they inevitably got questions about the death tax that they were going to put on if they won the election. And that started with just some social media posts, uh, as you, Murph, have have looked into, just watching it grow on Facebook and uh, across other social media from that. So, yeah, we have seen it. What are the Victorian Liberals trying to do? I assume stay in opposition for as long as possible. I think that seems to be the strategy here. I mean, their basic defence is we're raising questions and if he's got nothing to hide, then he should be able to answer these questions. The questions being like, where were the steps? Were police called? Do you have footage? How can you not have footage? Everything is on camera. Isn't that strange? Well, I don't have a camera on me at 6.30. In the morning when I'm getting ready for work, because nobody needs to see that. There's been a lot of suggestions on social media that there might be more to this than meets the eye, but there hasn't actually been anything, any facts, anything. But it's now been pushed along to where we're discussing it on
0: podcast. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they are. I think they are desperate. I mean, a lot of their political strategy has been to suggest that the the medical advice doesn't support the, the lockdown, and they they haven't they haven't really won. The political argument, but maybe they see advantage in, in in sowing doubt about whether or not the Andrews government is trustworthy generally and uh, are trying to profit from from his absence by suggesting that there are questions to answer when they haven 't really stated what the Basis for them thinking that it's anything other than than what it appears on the surface is.
2: Paul, um, are you actually a lizard person? And uh, if not, could you provide proof that you're not actually <laughs> but, a but, lizard
1: person? But, uh, but now just, that you mentioned. Yeah,
4: <laughs> if you have nothing to hide. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but is there just
2: before we move on
3: though? Is uh, c- can this work to some degree in conspiracy sort of universe? Because oddly, in a kind of cultural moment where a lot of people document literally their every waking moment and share it with others on social media and where there is no privacy that the strategic retreat by andrews presumably to recover from a very serious fall and set of ser- and serious injuries you know he sort of disappeared so i i actually wonder whether it it works in a way where it where it takes hold in a way because Bizarrely, in our contemporary times, a, a prominent person has disappeared.
0: People will really notice the first day that he turns back up for work. That's that's one thing you can guarantee now. From the from the sort of blackout, properly taking himself offline to recover, and now the liberals putting his absence up in. In lights is that people will really notice the first day he's wearing the North Face jacket and he's giving the news. There'll be
2: allegations of green screens and he's wearing his pants backwards and he's not actually walking there and it's a clone. Like, like has anyone heard that Daniel Andrews clone? Conspiracy. No, I haven't heard the clone. Uh, well, you know, like most politicians are apparently cloned now, but there's actually questions on social media that it may have been the clone that injured the back and they need more time to create a new clone. <laughs> the, Dan the, Dan the clone is. of the clone <laughs> before they can come back. Like this is how insane it is. But we know it works because I mean that was the whole like you
1: know, Pizzagates uh yeah. conspiracy yeah, yeah. that's took off in the United and States. Hillary Clinton's
4: health, you
1: know. Well it's I mean, uh, I did look very closely at those images of Melania Trump. I did look at them very closely. Closely wondering if that was a Melania Trump double, and like I'm, I, I, I like most people, a, a conspiracy theory still is a little titillating. I will confess. So I mean, yeah. But that's, every that's, conspiracy
4: that's, needs a kernel of truth yeah, behind exactly. it. Yeah, like that's, that's what
1: I'm trying so, to get. get so he's at not, here. in yeah, he's, he's, he's not
4: present at the moment.
1: Well, it's sort of like that strategic
3: silence is so unusual.
1: In I get the, like, you know, when people are sick these days, like if a politician's in hospital, they will do a little like a little Facebook live video, yeah. be like, hey guys, yeah. I'm in hospital. Look at you know. So you're right. Like It is very unusual to have such an absence. Though has anyone had a serious back injury? No, 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 no. I'm just saying, I get it. No, 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 I know. No, no,
3: I I applaud it. (laughs) It's just that I think that this is sort of part of the story. It's because we're sort of now so acculturated around everyone is present all the time everyone is ubiquitous all the time when someone isn't there all of a sudden then and in a in a sort of high misinformation mistrust environment this is this is what sits underneath they the, his, the vacuum, I guess. exactly
4: i'm just skeptical it'll change any votes i feel like they're playing to a base that's you know sees the the liberal Party base a cohort that sees Dan Andrews and lockdowns both as villains, yeah, um, and that hasn't really, as Paul said, hasn't really landed. So I'm not sure that it would change any votes. Well,
3: it's a, and it's also another cultural element, isn't it? That there's that there is this, you know, talk to your base and no one else phenomenon. That's part of it as well. Anyway, we've got we've got to keep rolling, kids, because we've got so many questions. And as I said up the top of the show, they're pretty bloody good, and we want to all get into them. So Paul, we're going to stick with Victoria at least thematically, um, uh, how has the televising of political press conferences, uh, and, I mean, obviously this is broader than Vic, but uh, it's, it's in that context, how has it changed political journalism? Are uh, journalists like us, are we now mindful of being watched? Because we know these press conferences are being broadcast live, has live broadcasting changed the way that politicians answer questions? And also, just you know, just for just to be easy, um, is the criticism that a number of those Victorian journalists have, have faced over the pandemic is that legit?
0: Well, I think th- there is a lot more engagement with the press conferences uh, from the general public. And we all remember at the start of COVID, the sort of 9 or 10pm press conferences where Scott Morrison was announcing whether or not you'd have to shut your business, whether or not you could go to the gym, whether or not you could visit your grandmother or grandfather in, an, in a nursing home. All those things were very uh, important for people's lives. And so people tuned in. And, you know, I wasn't conscious of it while the press conference was happening, but then afterwards you We'd get messages from, you know, friends and extended family, not political junkies, wouldn't be watching, you know, the National Press Club or Question Time every day, but just sort of, you know, just... People that go about their normal life without much interest in politics were watching. I don't think it's changed our behaviour much at all because you're you're still just doing your best to try and get information and to, to hold them to account. I don't think live broadcasting changes the politicians much either because it's a very similar game uh, as if it were going in a package that people would see in the six pm news. It when the grab up yeah, game, yeah, exactly. When yeah. you're on the offensive, you want to you want to give the give the grab, the the sharp, you know, the sound bite. When you're on the defensive, you, you want to play it down, maybe softer voice, maybe sound boring so that it won't get included in a package. As far as uh, how journalists come off to the general public and whether there's criticism of the way Victorian journalists have done, done their job, I think seeing the question broadcast can appear abrasive to people, but I, I think that's just them doing their job and trying to apply scrutiny. And, you know, I, I'd ask people to... Just remember that them throwing that question is just such a small part of their job and a lot of their job is getting very banal answers to emails from the department that don't really answer anything and putting in freedom of information requests that are all blacked out that don't really answer anything. And then they rock up to this press conference and it's go time because the, the camera finally puts some pressure on, on someone who might actually know something. And if they're skirting around the issue, dancing away from the, the, the question, trying to avoid answering at all costs, then you can forgive them for, uh, for making sure that they get an answer answer with a follow-up or two. I think
3: that's, I just want to pause there because I think that's actually really good context that people would not necessarily understand, you know, that, that there's a whole sort of well, it's sort of like a release. It's it's like a there is there's a lot of uh, frustration, <laughs> professional frustration that builds up, and then you you literally have a time limited moment to try and get an answer out of someone, right? So that's context that people won't, don't necessarily I know. About. I think
1: it's a really weird situation where people are attacking journalists for asking questions. And we've seen it. You know, Lee Sales gets attacks when, attacked when she's, a, when she's asking about the merits or otherwise of lockdowns. Rachel Baxendale at The Australian, who's a, a, a good journalist, gets harangued for asking questions. I, I sort of think you know, stay focused on the people who are actually the ones who are supposed to be being held account accountable here, and that is the government of either political persuasion and journalists, that is their job to keep these people accountable. So I sort of think it's a really unfair for people to be targeting the journalists individually and, and often quite personally for, for asking questions of the elected government, which is their job. Okay, but I'll, I'll chuck a counterfactual Go on. into that. And
3: uh, so we, uh, we dish it out. We dish it out for a living. We write, absolutely scarifying pieces about politicians if we need to. We engage in all kinds of quite robust commentary about, you know, people in power. Why is it not okay to hear some of that back?
0: Well, the politician, if a question is genuinely unfair, the politician can... Um, you know, reject the premise, can be personally rude to the person, can, you know, stand up and and defend themselves. And like I think that however much you might disagree with the coverage of a particular media organisation or the tone of a journalist when they're asking it, you also don't have to consume that. Whereas, like, the politician is making a decision where, you you know, you you can't, you're either going to be locked down or you're not. You can't really hide from that decision. You can't really protect yourself from it or disengage from it. So, Yes, I think we have to be a- accountable as well, but like in terms of the amount of influence over people's lives, it's it's the public official, not the not the journalist who's going to be the difference between whether, you know, you, you, you're you're able to visit your loved ones or have a terrible day or have to shut down your business or, or get covid or whatever. So
2: also sometimes we have to ask stupid questions because we need the yes. answer to what seems very obvious but hasn't actually been said and we actually just need that answer. So it might seem like a stupid question, but it's the only actual way to get the statement from them.
4: And it's easier if it's not broadcast, isn't it? Like, (laughs) to ask a stupid question. But sometimes we have to ask a stupid question. It's a sort of fact-finding thing. Because if you don't ask it there, you might end up writing a story that's rubbish and the other thing you sometimes have to do is put a proposition that almost like a lawyer that then gets uh, rebutted or that they might want to challenge but that's fine like so some of our questions are fact-finding questions that may look like stupid questions sometimes they're putting propositions to be you know care to comment does do you reject this or is this true
3: Mm. yes any other thoughts because I think people are really people who are engaged, people who are watching a lot of the coverage, are sort of chewing over this in mm. in all kinds of ways. What are the contexts? what other contexts can we give listeners about this? I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job, I think actually. Paul's
1: point is really important about what, what comes before that moment and that being a very small opportunity to actually ask a question directly to an elected official when, you know, oftentimes you don't get answers any other way. I think it's really, mm. really, really important yeah. for people to that's understand. That's, yeah,
3: why. Yes, and highlighted.
2: Also, mm. particularly in, you know, recent times and also with the federal government, you're learning something in real time. And so you know that this is your only opportunity to ask questions that day because as as Paul and Sarah pointed out, they're not going to answer questions in any other way. You don't get a second press conference. If you're dealing with the feds, you might only get a press conference every three days or so. So you've got three days of questions as you're also learning about something new. So you kind of just ask everything that comes to your head as well
1: and in that really, moment. And do you really want a situation where journalists are either censored from asking questions or self-censor because they're worried about what people are going to think if they ask a particular question i think that's i think that's madness mm.
4: and one of one other point often press conferences like to announce re- responses to royal commissions and so on sometimes the source document the actual response is yes. not released until way through the presser or at the end of the presser, afterwards. so yeah. we don't always have the information. That's why it might look like stupid questions.
3: Yeah, exactly. And
2: like the well. only yeah. thing I'll also add is there seems to be a little bit of a cult of favoured politicians and public officials at the moment. And I get it because a lot of these people have kept people safe and have kept people feeling like we have got you know through the worst of this pandemic. But politicians and public officials are still there to be scrutinised and to be questioned. And you may like. Them personally, but that doesn't mean that the journalist hates them if they're asking mm. these questions.
1: Mm.
3: Oh,
2: good. It's not a personal attack when we question something or say, is that perhaps the best way you could have phrased that? Mm. It's that this cult of personality can be da- uh, just as dangerous to democracy, I think, as conspiracy theories.
3: Mm. Paul, have you got any more thoughts before we go to your next couple? Just because we all weighed in there massively. No, no. No, all good. All right, two more uh, that Paul is taking the lead on. Regarding the Medicare item number changes, uh, if you've missed this story, the quick version of it is that there's been some sort of uh, reforming of Medicare or, well, what would you call it? Pruning of Medicare? I don't know what you'd call it. You do. Anyway. Adjustment of, adjustments. The,
0: uh, of the subsidy for Medicare items. Exactly.
3: Our questioner who in this one, God, I'm really bad with, oh, with shouting out to questioners, which is terrible. I think it's Ian Yates. It is Ian Yates, uh, at Ian Yates 82, who is wanting to know, is this similar to other tidy ups of Medicare in the past when item numbers were removed? Rem- were removed because they're out of date or you know some other reason uh, is the difference this time poor communications or is there more to this
0: so yes it's a clean up but it also changes the rebate amount it, now it does that because um, the cost changes over time, so the rebound amount should change as well, but it, the result is that it's a sort of mixed bag where out-of-pocket costs are cheaper for many things, but in a few anomalous cases, um, especially for users of the private system, it's going to result in, in price hikes. It is, you know, has, is this the result of poor communication? Really, I think the government hopes that changes like this, that are very technical, will slide by without being part of the, the political conversation. In this case, the AMA, um, so the, the doctors, have taken issue with the implementation of this because they think that some procedures like arthroscopy and orthopaedics will have a sudden you know, price hike that's going to shock people after 1 July. And really, the, the thing that has put rocket fuel on this issue is Labor absolutely belting the government about Medicare through all their social media channels. If you go to, you know, Albanese, Shorten, Jason Clare, look at their social media feeds at the moment—it's like it's 2016 all over again. Mm-hmm. It's like you know they're, they're bringing up the GP co-pay from 2014. <laughs> they're bringing up you know privatizing Medicare from 2016. They're, they're throwing all of that in, in with this because it, they, they think you know the government is not trusted on health, and so it's time to capitalise on but, it. But
3: is that is that critique is that fair? Well, is it mediscare?
0: Well, I I think given the cost of many of the things are going down, um, I I don't think that's that's fair. And now, Hunt and the AMA have agreed that they're going to review the anomalous ones or the unintended consequences. So Labor, having grabbed the issue, might have helped to fix it in that the ones that were going up in costs might not anymore. Mm. But for them, I think it was was more an opportunity, opportunity. that was too good to miss.
3: Mm. And the last one uh, before we get to just a couple of fun ones at the end from uh, a, a correspondent. I'm fully COVID vaccinated but was still forced to compete 14 days isolation on return to South Australia from one day in Melbourne and had four negative tests. When will being vaccinated count towards returning to normal?
0: Well, the, the government's put in... <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> the, the government's just trying to develop the architecture at the moment of having a certificate that demonstrates that you have been vaccinated. So that that's the first step. People being able to actually prove that, in terms of when that will entitle you to anything, to go somewhere, to do something that an unvaccinated person can't do, I think that's quite a long way off. Because Scott Morrison tried a few weeks ago to suggest that that you know vaccination passports would be something that could exempt you from state lockdowns or, or lockouts, and there was a pushback from from the premiers over that. So I I think. That, that that's not the, immediately on the cards. And for a very good practical reason, um, the AMA President Omar Khorshid at the Press Club was talking about, well, you can't really start introducing that differential rights and privileges until everyone has had a chance to have the vaccine. Yes. And there are many age groups, I mean, especially under 40, that don't have access to the, the vaccine yet. So it's it's really not until October, November, December when when everyone, is eligible for the vaccine? Do I think that you, you will you will start to get this differentiation about what you can and can't do?
2: Not just eligible, but had it, you'd still need a huge percentage of the population to have been vaccinated uh, before you can even consider that. Because even if you have been vaccinated, you can still get COVID or pass it on, is what the science is saying. You just are much better protected yourself at the moment. So uh, until Australia reaches something even close to herd immunity, it's not going to be the case where you can go, okay, you've had your jabs, off you go and live your merry life because Australia as a whole is not at that place
1: yet.
3: Mm. So
1: I think there's also a really interesting equity argument sort of going to what um, Dr koshi was saying, but which is playing out in the international space, where which is far ahead of Australia along the curve. But given that wealthier nations have had access to the vaccine sooner, you've kind of got this issue where people are now being uh, allowed to travel within Europe and in various countries under various systems. But it's it's there is an equity problem here in that people from poorer countries haven't had as much uh, access to the vaccine vaccine. So we've kind of got that on a, a larger scale internationally playing out while Australia is still sort of working out how to get past yes, the very early very stages early. of our oh, vaccination program. Indeed. And I will just add in there that Australia still hasn't agreed to share the
2: patent which is something that a lot of developed nations have and Australia has yet to come to the table on that. So that's probably something we should do to help developing nations Mm. as well.
3: Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, well, just a couple of things uh, at the risk of trying your patience. But anyway, I think we're cracking along (coughs) quite well. Just some fun ones. Okay, so briefly, the question is, how does the Guardian team remove ourselves Yourselves from the world. Examples proffered by our questioner were reading, singing, tap dancing. Paul.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> there was don't...
3: something about the tap dancing that made me go to you first.
0: I, I don't know karaoke or just or just singing when you're out walking the dog or something. Uh-huh. Yes, and then when when someone else walks by and it's too embarrassing and you don't want to be actually singing the words, just uh, humming or or, or, or making in tune singing in tune but not actually but vocalizing the words But
3: if you're humming like what's the difference between hum, humming and singing on the embarrassment well, the, the lyrics I mean you know oh. like like do, is much weirder
0: no, like, no scrubs or you know like you want to be sharing that it's a 90s and b thing or come tu- E- exa- oh. Exactly. You, you, it's, a, it's a way of... They, they are aware that you are engaging with the music yes. um, and that you're being demonstrative about it, but you're not actually having to sing, you know, My Humps, My Humps or something like that.
2: <laughs> Paul <laughs> okay. has some of the worst music taste no, in the office, well, by the way. Yeah, I was going to yeah, so was
3: gonna cool. say, possibly that's the difference, is that you have genuinely
0: terrible taste You're in an music. 80s fan, though, aren't you? Well, that's, that's a pretty that big is, call, is, isn't is it? That is not genuinely
3: terrible, just for the record. <laughs> just for the record. Order. All right. Okay. So Paul sings as he walks his lovely dog, Daniel.
4: Uh, sleep. Yes. <laughs> yes. Listening to podcasts. Not. I mean, to relax. Maybe not this far.
3: <laughs> yes, we've got a couple of new parents here. So yes, sleep, sleep. Good, good answer,
1: Sarah. Uh, yes, with the one and three year old, sleep is always my um, my my main hobby. But um, walking, mm-hmm. um, try to tune out. I
3: think, yeah, I think that's important, the tuning out bit. Like, I think that's sort of implicit in the question from our person who is clearly worried about our well-being (laughs) after a really grinding 18 months. I also Um, do
1: Netflix where I knit and watch Netflix. So I try to be productive and waste my life watching television. My God,
2: multi-skilled. Amy? Um, I stare at a lot of walls. I, I do, one of my favourite pastimes. I do a, pastimes. A, lot, a lot of staring at absolutely nothing. Um, for a while was giving alcohol dependency a red hot go. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but mostly I think the disengaging is really important. When I don't work, well, weekend shifts, I don't actually consume any news until about 6pm on a Sunday when I prepare for the next week. Uh, and I just try to just switch off from social media as much as possible. Not my personal one, of course. You are going to get lots of selfies of me staring at walls, but uh, but in terms of news, you do need to turn off and start looking at it as a normal person again.
3: Yeah, I would only add Bravo TV every renovation show ever. It's oh, really? sort of like oh, it's like my Xanax. Yeah, <laughs> just pop it on, you just go to your happy place. It's quite good. <laughs> it's good to know. All right, last one from now. That, oh God, Jan, I am sure it's you, Jan Sant. Yes, it is. So quickly whipping around, Paul, starting coffee or tea. And does the type of cup matter?
0: One and a half cups of plunger coffee in the morning and no. No. Any cup? Uh, Not really. It doesn't matter. It doesn't bother you. Okay. You
2: had some nice herbal teas for a while there too. We had the bock, the wall of herbal teas. That's the very pretty wall.
0: That's just to avoid being awake at midnight because I can't have caffeine after like 10am. Very sensible. Daniel? Coffee, big cup. Okay. Sarah?
1: Oh gosh, I have a very complicated cup um, um, regime. But, <laughs> look, uh, a cup of tea with, in a particular teacup, and then a cup of coffee in a particular coffee cup. But is
3: it when you say it's particular? Is it because it's got a pattern, or because it's china or oh, ceramic? It's, it's just or... the
1: same. It's the particular shape and colour of the, the teacup that we will have every morning, followed by the particular <laughs> sounding like a crazy person. <laughs> particular no, coffee no, cup. No, and the coffee cup is is focused on volume, I think, volume. and then the teacup is the sort of shape of it.
3: Okay. Okay. And just before we get to Amy reporting her preferences, I'll just say to people, to listeners, if you are genuinely interested in our <laughs> in my hot beverage regime. implements, hit us up on socials and we may share pictures. Amy.
2: <laughs> um, when I'm on the blog, I'll have probably about four giant cups of coffee before uh, 10 a.m. Uh, and then I'll have a couple more after question time. Again, alcohol dependency. It's really easy to hide a little bit of vodka in the many long black. How coffees do you having? I have a lot of coffee. Mind. Yeah, it's I do. Like mind. and it does nothing to me either. I'm I'm not like Paul. You could give me coffee at at 11 pm, and I'd still it's fall asleep. The, it's
3: your European genes. I
2: think it is, as the Eastern European. And I don't actually put vodka in my coffee anymore. Um, not since leaving Queensland. Um, but <laughs> 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 I didn't know you drank quite that much. Yeah, no, I know. I drank a, a lot. And black, no sugar. Yes. Yeah. Cup. Cup, um, big. And then I drink about 10 cups of Russian Caravan tea. Must be Russian Caravan. And it has to be in a tall mug. It's this one here, actually. It's yes. this broken mug that's covered in tannin stains and stuff. And I love it. And we'll never give it up.
3: It's joined us in the in the uh, in the pod and uh, just quickly for me i sadly can't have caffeine it's one of the great deprivations of my life but i'm in a room full of people who very kindly and generously get me decafs whenever i'm looking like Thanks. i'm gonna flag so yeah that's our report anyway thank you that's been a marathon. Uh, We really enjoy these conversations. We have a million of these conversations in the office every day, and it is nice to share them uh, with our loyal audience. And as I said, the quality of the questions for this session was great. And we want to try and do one of these around once a month. So have a think, keep them coming. We are genuinely committed to try and Engage with the issues that you want us to engage with. So, thank you very much. Thank you to Miles Martignani, who's the EP of the show. Thank you to Hannah Izzard. God, is Parliament back next week?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah.
3: oh God. Yes. Anyway, sorry. We love, it. we love our job. We're Parliament's back excited. next week, and the pod will be back too. Thanks for listening.